Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, good morning, Bible Center family. It's so good to have you back. Thank you for joining us in person. For those of you who are joining us online or on TV, it's great to have you with us. If you're new, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. We like to say here that we're a family expecting guests. And so if you came as a guest, it's our desire that you will leave as a friend. Here's today's sermon title. We're covering a a heavy topic this morning, this idea of how to teach your children about sexual identity. And I do want to say one more time, as has already been mentioned, this message is PG-13. And so if you have younger children, just wanted you to be aware of that. We have our children's ministry available, should you choose to take advantage. Uh, if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, all, almost all of my messages here at Bible Center are primarily to believers. According to Ephesians 4, one of my main jobs is to equip believers for the work of the ministry. In other words, it's to build you up, the church, to go out the other six days of the week and win your neighbors and friends to Christ uh, to be a salt and light in the world. But as is and with every message, I try to make sure that I weave in the gospel. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to be giving you a word of hope at the end of the message uh, that I pray will not only uh, draw you closer into the people of God, but primarily draw you into God himself. Now, if you'd like to take notes, we have an app available for you. If you haven't yet downloaded the Bible Center app, you're going to want to do that. There's a lot there uh, for you as far as events go, things like Trunk or Treat, things like our Grandparents Summit this week. But the sermon notes are also on the app, and there's actually a lot more there each weekend uh, than what I have time to cover. And so if you want to go deeper and study in God's Word, I would encourage you uh, to download the app. Here's a book I want to recommend. This particular book is written by a close friend of mine, Jared Kennedy. Uh, We do plan to bring him here to Bible Center in the next year or so. Uh, He's just a phenomenal leader, a phenomenal teacher, teaching your children about gender. And uh, this book, you can download it for about a buck 99 as an e-book. All of that, again, is on the app or the website. We live in a culture today that is increasingly gender fluid or gender gender neutral. Male no longer means what male used to mean, same with female, boy and girl, etc. When I was a kid, when you talk with someone about their gender, you were referring to their sexual identity. But in today's world, that's no longer the case. Those two are no longer synonymous. In our world, sexual identity refers to your biological makeup, but gender now refers to what you want to be, how you want to interact with the world. And in some cases, it refers to the the, the sexual identity you wish you had. This week, the New York Times ran an article entitled, Superman Comes Out, DC Comics Ushers in a New Man of Steel. CNN ran a story on the same thing titled, The Power of a Queer Superman. Lego recently announced that it's going to be phasing out gender-specific Lego men and women. Before long, your children will only be able to buy androgynous Lego figures, so you won't know if they're a male or a female. This hit home for us uh, a few weeks ago when we were at the Texas Tech game at WVU. Uh, It was a hard game to watch for a lot of reasons, especially the first half, Uh, but that wasn't really what disturbed us about the event. We had a great day out as a family, but the thing that disturbed us the most was at halftime, for the first time in WVU history, they no longer have a homecoming king and a homecoming queen. Now they have a homecoming royalty. 
Now, I'm not opposed to two homecoming kings or 10 homecoming kings. That's totally fine. What, what concerns me is how we're trying to wash away gender from our society. Facebook will allow you, last time I checked, to register in one of 71 different genders. And so what do we say when our children ask us those questions? What do we say when our kids or grandkids have questions about some of these things? How do we respond? That's the goal of today's message. I want to provide you with one thing to know and five things to do. One thing to know and five things to do. Here's what I want you to know. Here's today's big idea. God designed the Christian home to be a haven where our kids can learn about sexual identity. God designed the Christian home to be a haven where our kids can learn about sexual identity. It's has always been God's design. Now we know that not all children have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, but it certainly is the Lord's design that mom and dad can teach these children and our grandchildren how and why God has made the world the way he's made the world. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 7 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's a Hebrew way of saying, love the Lord with your whole being, which includes your sexual identity. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Now, we can certainly farm out and partner with other people for the education of our children. Our oldest child graduated from GW, now is at a public university. Our middle child is uh, homeschooled. Uh, she's gone to public school and to Christian school. Uh, our youngest son is thriving at Bible Center School. And so uh, we've partnered along the way with various health teachers and science teachers and coaches. And certainly our family is not opposed to collaborating on some of these things, especially from different angles. But ultimately, I think we can agree that it's our responsibility to teach our children about sexual identity. It's no one else's ultimate responsibility, but it's our responsibility. In the next few minutes, I'm going to give you these five ways that you can engage your children when it comes to sexual identity. Number one, celebrate with your kids. Celebrate with your kids the gift of being made in God's image, male and female. God created our sexuality, and our kids need to know it. God made us a certain way, and our kids need to celebrate it. Notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Next verse goes on to say, let me just read it here. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. The male and female differences aren't the result of the fall. Your maleness or your femaleness isn't a tragedy that needs to be overcome. But the two sexes are designed to complement one another, and they were intended for your good and for your flourishing. By nature, boys in particular are designed 
though not exclusively, to be providers and protectors. This isn't just a money thing, it's an all-of-life thing. By nature, girls are designed, though not exclusively, to be more nurturing and relational. No two men are alike and no two women are alike. If we were to take a snapshot of the human race, and should the human race be all women, well, that wouldn't give a full picture of the image of God. And the same would be true if the human race were all men. Our maleness and our femaleness run much deeper than our genitalia. It's inscribed in our genetic code, with the Y chromosome being the marker that distinguishes males from females. It's in our brain and hormone chemistry. For instance, females typically have more estrogen. Males typically have more testosterone. And it's even in our secondary sex characteristics like facial hair and muscle mass and skeletal structure. So male and female, according to Genesis chapter 1, are categories of biological sex and gender. There is no in-between. There is no third gender, and there is no 71st gender. There are just two genders. Now, when I talk about this with friends, occasionally someone will bring up the intersex, intersex exception. What is the intersex exception? There are very rare cases where someone can be born as intersex, which simply means that person is born with one or more atypical features in their sexual anatomy or chromosomes. This is a very, very small percentage of the human population. But the medical terms for intersex condition is DSD, which stands for Differences or Disorders of Sexual Development. However, of the very small percentage of the human population that are born with such a condition, only or 99.98% of that small population are still biologically male or female. The other 0.02% that are diagnosed with a DSD are anatomically both male and female. We can discuss that. One of the results of living in a broken world is a lot of the conditions that we experience in the world. But here's my point. Even in those 0.02 conditions, 100% of the babies born in the world have a gender and sex. There is no third option. And so it's our job to teach children that being male and being female are actually gifts of God. I like what Hannah Anderson and Wendy Alsip say about this. By creating them as male and female, God invested their bodies with strength and weaknesses that would bind them together in mutual dependence as they fulfilled the creation mandate. The woman's body would allow her to cultivate new image bearers, but this would also make her more vulnerable. The man's body would be unable to bear life, but his physical strength would allow him to protect and provide. The differences between them were not an end in themselves, but they were the means by which they would together cultivate the good beauty of the earth and their own bodies. Together they would rule and reign over the new creation as king and queen. Let's celebrate this with our children. Let's discuss it with our children in an age-appropriate way. Number two, what can we do? Well, number two, support your kids' interests. Don't overreact if they don't fit in culture, cultural gender stereotypes. Don't overreact if they don't fit in certain stereotypes. 
Uh, Evelyn Bassoff, the author of Between Mothers and Sons, tells a story about a bullfighter from Madrid. I read it this week in Jared Kennedy's book, and I had to share the story. As the story goes, uh, this prize fighter was celebrating his victory at a fan's home. The host looked around and realized after some time that the bullfighter was no longer present for the party. And so the host went looking for the bullfighter and found him in the kitchen doing dishes. Now, in this particular culture, at that particular time, doing dishes was a woman's work, not a man's work. And so the host was aghast. How in the world? Why would you be doing dishes? Like he was just insulted almost. He said, this is women's work. And the bullfighter responded, sir, I am a man. Everything I do is masculine. So fellas, this afternoon when you do dishes, look at your wife and say, I am a man. Everything I do is masculine. As I said previously, gender, according to the Bible, is fixed, but gender expression does have variety. We could admit that. Gender expression has variety. In other words, in all cultures of the world, masculinity isn't expressed in the same way. And even in our culture, even in the Bible, think about the characters of Esau and Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Esau was known for taking dominion over God's earth as a mighty, rugged hunter right? Just like a lot of you. He loved to be out in the woods and provide the game of the field. Well, his brother Jacob, not so much. Jacob fulfilled the dominion mandate by being a mighty chef. Jacob could make a mean lentil stew. It was popular among his family and among his friends. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Jacob was less of a man because he was mighty in the kitchen while Esau was mighty in the forest? Not at all. They just expressed their masculinity in different ways. I think about Scotland, right? So if you're in Scotland and you're wearing a kilt, right? That's perfectly acceptable from what I'm told, right? Totally acceptable. Today, if you walk in wearing a kilt, you're probably going to get some looks here in Charleston, West Virginia, right? Not that it's totally unacceptable, but people are going to be wondering, like, why is that dude wearing a kilt? Sexual expression can vary. Let's be careful never to make a law, a command, or a stereotype not found in the New Testament. In other words, let's never say, boys don't cry. And let's never say, a woman's place is in the kitchen. Instead, let's call both men and women to fulfill their God-given gifts in a masculine and or feminine way. Now, I'll ask you this. Is it okay for girls to hunt and fish? Is it okay, right? All right, some of you in here can hunt and fish circles around me, right? But you're just as much a woman as any other woman who's ever walked the face of the earth. Is it okay for dudes to cook and bake? Is that okay? Of course it's okay, right? Nothing feminine about that. Matter of fact, I would encourage some of you young dudes to learn while you're still at home, your mama is not your slave, right? There's a mess in the kitchen. It's not your mama's job to clean it up. You can clean it up and you can learn to cook. You can learn to take care of yourself. Totally, totally okay. So I want to encourage you, support your kids' interests. Don't overreact if they don't fit cultural gender stereotypes. Let them be who God has made them to be in their masculinity, in their femininity. Number three, 
Teach your kids that sex is a good gift, but it's not ultimate. Teach your kids that sex is a good gift, but it's not ultimate. God created sex, and God has directed sex. Let's get the words of Jesus on this. Matthew 19, 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Hebrews 13, 4 says this, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Then he's going to tell us everything outside of that marriage bed. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Here's how we say it here at Bible Center in our member statement of faith. We believe God has designed marriage to be a covenantal relationship in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the law. It's a sexual, procreative, lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, I'll ask you to to raise your hand if you don't mind. How many of you remember when your parents or a grandparent or a mentor gave you the talk? The talk. Does anybody remember getting the talk? Will you raise your hand? You remember the talk? Yeah, I see some little hands going up. Sure, right? After all these years, we still remember the talk. I can't remember the first time I ate pizza, but I remember the talk, right? We went down to Valley Park down in Hurricane uh, to where the uh, wave pool is. There's two ponds on the property, and one of those ponds used to be filled with bass, and it was covered with bushes and shrubbery. No one really knew there was a pond there, but, but Dad and I knew there was a pond there. We would catch some big largemouth bass out of that pond. And so one day I remember going down there, and Dad started kind of fishing extra close to me and kind of, you know, wanting to start up a conversation. And, and before long, Dad's t- teaching me about how fish reproduce. So I'm like, this is super weird, right? Super weird. It was especially weird in the early service because my dad was in the early service. But um, we, dad started telling me about how fish reproduce and he even got out some lures and was like showing me things. And I'm just like looking at him like, man, this is super, super weird. Uh, but I remember the moment when my dad, I remember it, when he switched from fish to humans. And I'm looking at him like, please don't, dad. Please don't. I don't want to talk about this. But he did talk about this. And now I'm thinking about that as I have a son of my own. Sarah told me here a while back, she had the talk with both of our girls. And she's saying, Matt, it's your turn to have the talk with our son. And he's nine, almost 10. And I just want to confess to you, I am scared to death. I'm scared to death, right? What am I going to do? I'm probably going to take him fishing and get some lures. That's probably what I'm going to do, right? Work for my dad. It can work for me. But here's a couple of books that is, this isn't the primary book recommendation this week, but I do want to mention it, and we are going to put it on our social media for you to get. There's a series of four or five books that actually help you talk with your children at various ages, all the way down to ages three through five, five to seven, eight to 12, and so forth, about this issue in an age-appropriate way. Uh, these, the content of these books has helped Sarah and me, and I think it'll help you as well. Number four. Warn your kids against discontentment, excuse-making, and sin's empty promises. Warn your kids. Now, as we talk about gender identity, sexual identity, as we talk about uh, same-sex attraction in our culture, unfortunately, uh, I don't think we've always done the best of job as Christians or in the Christian realm. Uh, Some of my friends who are 
uh, identify as gay or they struggle with same-sex attraction, they will say, and I don't think they're wrong entirely, they will say that for almost the last 35, 40 years, really as the result of the moral majority, uh, Christians have kind of made homosexuality the issue. Almost as if like there's no other issue exists, but as long as you're not gay, then everything's okay. Right? And, and I think we need to listen to that because there's a lot in the Bible more than just this issue. And so if we're not careful, we as Christians will, will be one-note Joes. We'll just talk about the same thing over and over and over again. And I'm afraid we've done that to some degree in broader global evangelicalism. So we don't want to commit that error. And at the same time, we don't want to commit the error that, that I feel even in my own heart, loving people, knowing the struggles they, they go through. We don't want to commit the error of not talking about it. So there's a fine line and a, and a needle uh, we need to thread. Well, what does the Bible say about homosexuality or sexual sin in general? There's three passages, three primary passages that deal with this. One is Romans 1, one is 1 Corinthians 6, and the other is 1 Timothy 1. Let's look at Romans 1 and see what God says. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for the unnatural ones, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but look, notice this also approve of those who practice them. This is the side of the pendulum I think we're on now in American Christianity, where we say we know what's right and wrong, but will we approve of those who practice them? 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes this. This is the second of three passages. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, verse 11 is not on the screen, but I would encourage you this week to read verse 11. For Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. In other words, all of us fall in the category that I just read somewhere. We're all in that verse, and we all deserve hell. But thankfully, Jesus is saving, has saved us and is transforming us. 1 Timothy 1, the third and final passage dealing with this in the New Testament. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the ungodly and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. 
and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. So what do we do with our loved ones and friends who struggle with same-sex temptation? What do we do? How do we handle that? How do we discuss this? Well, let's start with this question. When you're tempted with sin, any sin, have you sinned, yes or no? When you're tempted to sin, have you sinned, yes or no? Actually, according to the Bible, you haven't. You haven't. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is in your notes, tells us that all temptation we're common to, is common to man, but God is faithful who will not let us be tempted above that which we're able. So according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, we don't sin until we give in to the temptation. According to Matthew 4, Jesus suffered temptation. The devil tempted Jesus with all sorts of things. Does that mean Jesus sinned? No, because he didn't give in to the temptation. James 1, 13 and 14 is another verse that says we're all, we all have unique lusts. In other words, the person sitting next to you, their lusts are as different as your DNA is different. We have these combinations of temptations and we're all unique according to James 1. So for one Christian, it might be heterosexual lust. For another Christian, it might be homosexual lust or same-sex attraction. Always remember this, attraction is not the sin. Our reaction to the attraction is the sin. Attraction is not the sin. The reaction to the attraction is the sin. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. Heterosexuality is not listed in the Bible as one of the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus never says, if you come to Jesus, you're only going to struggle with heterosexual temptation. Not at all. God calls every believer, no matter their temptations, gay or straight, to self-discipline, self-denial, and holiness. For those are fruits of the Spirit. I'll illustrate it this way. Let's talk about a guy named Bubba. My apologies today if your name is Bubba, uh, but that's, a, that's the only name I could think of. Let's come up with Bubba. Okay, Bubba loves his wife, Bubba loves his kids, but Bubba's job has him traveling all over the United States, all right? Bubba, again, loves his family, but Bubba really likes girls, right? That's always been his temptation. As long as he can remember, Bubba loves girls. Now, let's just say you're talking with Bubba. Maybe you're Bubba's counselor. And Bubba begins to talk about the struggles of working long hours over the road and being away from home. And Bubba begins to say, well, you know, my heart makes me want to be with other women. You know, I'm beginning to wonder, maybe it's okay if I have some girlfriends on the side in some of these other business locations, because after all, I need to be true to my nature. That's just the way God made me. What would you say to Bubba who's struggling with heterosexual temptation. You would say, Bubba, God's called you to holiness. Look, this, this temptation that you feel within you, you haven't sinned just because you feel that temptation. But oh, Bubba, don't give in to that temptation. That temptation leads to death. Bubba, God's called you to holiness. 
Jesus said, you got to deny yourself, Bubba. Come on, man, I'm going to pray for you. You can do this. Now let's apply that same encouragement to a Christian brother or sister who struggles with homosexual temptation. The world is trying to tell them and tell us, follow your heart. You need to be true to yourself. After all, that's just the way God's made you. You see the subtle problem with that? It's the same thing as it is with Bubba. We have to go to those brothers and sisters and say, oh no, God says this is off limits. He's called you to holiness. I'm gonna be here for you. I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna love you. But do not cross the line that God said not to cross. Warn your kids against discontentment, excuse making, and sin's empty promises. Jude 4 says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license of immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Jude was Jesus's half-brother, just like James was Jesus's half-brother. Jude says, it's a little letter, almost at the very end of the Bible, right before Revelation. In this little letter, Jude uh, warns, he writes in verse 3, he says, I want to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, I want to talk about the gospel. But in verse 4, he says, but God's actually called me to write to you about something else today. And it's about how sexual immorality has crept in the church and how some are making it sound okay. I can sympathize with Jude, right? I totally can sympathize with Jude. I wish that 52 weeks out of the year, I could preach just on our common salvation. I guarantee it, I wouldn't need this if that's all I ever preached on, right? I, I would love week after week just to talk about the glories that we have in Christ and all while that's so important and while we must tie everything back to that, the scriptures include more than that. And I'm afraid we're a lot like they were in Jude 4, where we have Christian teachers teaching false doctrine, almost making it sound okay for us to cross lines that God has said not to cross. Here's some of the excuses that I've heard talking with close friends and family. Homosexuality, they say, is condemned in the Old Testament, and they're right. But, they say, it's allowed in the New Testament. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, they say, and they're right, but therefore it's okay to commit homosexuality or to be in a specifically a monogamous homosexual relationship in the New Testament. Do you see how they mix truth with error? Not everything in that statement I just read is wrong. Jesus did fulfill the Old Covenant. We are no longer under the Old Covenant. The reason we don't murder is not because the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not murder. The reason we don't murder is because in the New Covenant, that command was repeated, just like so many other commands were repeated. But we have to be careful when we're engaging with our, our, our friends and family on this issue. Let's be careful with quoting Leviticus chapter 18 or chapter 20. The moment you pull out Leviticus 18 and 20 to try to prove your point, those same chapters say that it's wrong to eat bacon. And they will remind you of that. So Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. But the reason that this particular sin is still sin is because of what we read in Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. We're new covenant believers. 
Some of my friends have said, well, if Paul were alive today, he would affirm same-sex attraction or same-sex marriage. My question is, on what basis? On, on what basis? Who said? Those who make this claim say that the words for homosexuality in the New Testament only speak to male prostitution or to the exploitation of young boys, as was common in the Roman era. But such a statement is not only scripturally ill-informed, it is also historically and purposefully deceiving. While gay marriage was by no means common in the ancient world, it did exist, and everybody knew about it, including Paul. In fact, the notorious emperor Nero, who ruled Rome while Paul wrote his letters, married two other men on two separate occasions. As historian and queer studies pioneer Louis Crompton puts it, Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstance. The idea that homosexuality might be excusable in a monogamous marriage would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or, or Christian. Some have said, well, Jesus would approve of it. But again, I ask, on what basis? In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, out of the heart comes sexual immorality. The Greek word there is pornea. At the time of Jesus, it referred to premarital sex, prostitution, or same-sex behavior. Jesus is not nearly as tolerant to sexual sin as our modern world might think. Some have said, well, Jesus accepts me for who I am. Therefore, that's all that matters. Do you see how subtle that is, that statement? Now, here's a question. Does Jesus want you to come to him just like you are? Is that a true statement? Absolutely, it's a true statement. It's just like I said last week with John chapter eight. You've got the woman caught in adultery. Jesus comes up to her and he says, woman, I don't condemn you. Jesus offered her salvation. Jesus is a savior, right? But after that conversation, what did he tell her? Go and sin no more. People who say that the Bible isn't about change, in my opinion, have never read the Bible. The whole thing's about change and conversion. I was an enemy of God, but Jesus is changing me and transforming me more today than yesterday and more yesterday than the day before to be more like him. The whole Christian life is about change. So yes, we come to Jesus as we are, but thankfully he doesn't leave us as we are. I'm, a, I'm concerned that the devil's uh, hiss from the Garden of Eden is louder than it's ever been in my lifetime. Remember what the devil or the serpent said to Eve in the garden? He asked her, he said, has God said? Hath God said? Don't you hear that in our culture today, even among some who claim to be Christian? Has God really said? And that leads us down the road that we find ourselves today. Warn your kids against discontentment, excuse-making, and sin's empty promises. Number five, and lastly, show genuine care and concern, or genuine care and empathy towards kids who persistently struggle, continually pointing them to Jesus. In 1 Timothy 1.10 is where Paul mentions 
the sin of giving into homosexual temptation. But five verses later is where he says, in Christ Jesus saved me, a sinner of whom I am chief. If you read Paul's writings, you'll find that Paul struggled with one, at least one particular sin over and over again. Read Romans 7. Paul says, man, there's this one thing that I keep, my flesh wants to do and I won't do it. And my flesh wants to do it and I won't do it. And I'm so thankful that in Romans 7, Paul never tells us what it is. He never tells us. I think the reason for that is because we can all cut and paste our own temptation in there. Whatever it is we struggle with, we can relate to Paul. Nobody knows for sure what Paul's temptation was, but there are some scholars who say because of the relationship with 1 Timothy 1.10 and 1 Timothy 1.15 that it's possible that Paul's temptation may have been same-sex attraction. Now, we don't know, but I know this, that wouldn't have made Paul any less of a man and it wouldn't have made him any less of a Christian. Paul says, the things I struggle with, I know I don't need to do them. And Jesus is the only one who can help me. Here's how we say this at Bible Center in our member statement of faith. We believe all people are uniquely broken and no person is beyond the hope of the gospel. We're committed to speaking the truth and love at all times, including when we discuss these issues. The grace of God in Christ is sufficient to forgive all sexual sin and to give every gospel believer the power to make holy choices. In your notes, you'll see six or seven things to do. If you have a child who maybe feels, they come out and they feel as though they have same-sex attraction or a grandchild, it's in your notes. You can read them yourself, how to respond. I've listed some very, very practical ways. But in the end, we need to respond with care and empathy, realizing that just because their sexual sin may be different than ours or because their temptations are different than ours, that doesn't make us any better or superior to them or to anyone else. The main thing is that we continually point them to Jesus. And this might be a lifelong thing. God may have put you in their life to keep pointing them to Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, I want to point you to Jesus. Look to Jesus. There is no sin you've committed there is no temptation that you will feel today that is beyond the reach of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day to give you new life. My call to you today is believe in Christ. Receive Christ. Christian, the call to you is the same. Look to Christ. Just as Jesus can save you from sin, Jesus is saving you from your habits from your hang-ups, from your hopelessness. Look to Jesus, Christian parent, Christian grandparent, continually, continually celebrate with your kids the gift of being made in God's image, male and female. Support their interests. Don't overreact if they don't fit cultural gender stereotypes. Teach them that sex is a good gift, but it's not ultimate. Warn them against discontentment, excuse-making, and empty promises and show genuine care and empathy, pointing them to Jesus. You say, Matt, why should we do these things? Why? It's because God designed the Christian home to be a haven where our kids can learn about sexual identity. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.